Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to Brooklands. I'm Steve Clark, and it's fantastic to see many, so many of you are here this evening. Um, I hope you didn't mind us overrunning on the Winkle Brown uh, video, because many of you may know it's exactly three years ago today that we lost him. Um, four years ago, he was here with us. For me, one of the most remarkable evenings and remarkable men that I've ever had the privilege to meet, the likes of which I don't think we will ever see again. It's also 12 months since our guest speaker was here. Um, you remember that talk was on the history of Goodwood. Um, such a thing start here and then go worldwide. Um, Harry was invited to California to give that self-same speech. Now, you know what a modest man he is, and uh, he probably won't like to talk about it, but I'm sure he will sneak something in. So, will you please give a very warm Brooklyn's welcome this evening to Harry Sherrod. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming along to my talk this evening on um, Operation Sea Lion, the German plan to invade Britain and British invasion defences in the summer of 1940. Now, the aerial Battle of Britain, of course, is very well known. I'm sure everybody in this room has seen the Battle of Britain movie probably several times. Uh, you might have seen the Hurricane movie that came out last year about uh, the Polish pilots. If you haven't seen it, it's very, very good. I noticed that every book from the bookshop down along the back wall there is all about the aviation side of the Battle of Britain. And whilst the, the courage and the sacrifice and the skill of the fighter pilots or fighter command is rightly famous, um, it's not the whole story. So my objective this evening is to tell you the broader story of that critical summer of 1940. So here we have the German army marching down a British street past Lloyd's Bank. Not Weybridge. Anybody know where that was? Guernsey, correct. Uh, St. Peterport in Guernsey. So uh, as many of you may know, the British demilitarized the Channel Islands and they were occupied um, by the Germans um, throughout the war. But what would an occupation of mainland Britain have looked like? Well, a German military administration of England was formed and they set up some objectives in the 9th of September 1940. One of their objectives was this, the able-bodied male population between 17 and 45 is to be interned and as far as possible removed um, to the mainland. So 11 million adult males uh, would have faced incarceration and slavery uh, on the continent uh, in the German war machine. The country's resources will be secured for the benefit of the German war economy. So all of our resources would have been plundered as well. So this was due to be a very harsh regime. The Germans didn't go that far in France and Belgium and the other countries that they occupied, so they had a very harsh regime planned um, for Britain. They also drew up this document. Apologies, probably not many of you, on the, not in the front row, you can't read this, but I'll read a couple of bits out to you. So this was a document that was going to be distributed to the population of Britain. So number one, English territory occupied by the German armed forces will be placed under German military occupation. Let's look at number five. Any ill-considered act, any form of sabotage, any resistance, active or passive, against the German armed forces will be met with the sharpest possible reprisals. 
And number six, I hereby warn all civilians against the commitment of any hostile acts against the German armed forces. Such acts will be remorselessly punished by sentence of death. So, as I said, uh, an extremely aggressive regime. And in effect, that's a war crime. So the Germans were flagging up in advance uh, their intention to impose an automatic death sentence on civilians for any um, act uh, hostile to the German forces. <coughs> so in charge of security, uh, that job was lined up for this guy on the left, Hans Six, a Gestapo officer. And uh, God help our parents and grandparents if that vicious little thug had uh, taken over. He had a hit list of over 2,000 people that he was going to round up from Obviously, any royalty he could get hold of, politicians, senior industrialists, uh, and they were probably all going to be uh, to be murdered. On the right-hand side is a photograph from Poland, uh, and there you can see uh, civilians being lined up against the wall and uh, being shot in the back. So this was all very, very real and very, very close. So let's have a quick recap on the war to date. Um, as you all know, the Germans invaded Poland in 1939. Britain and France declared war, and here the German army is uh, marching through Warsaw. But that done, nothing much happened for a while. Through the winter of 39-40, the war was still on, but nobody was actually shooting at each other. An American journalist came over to the UK, and he sent a piece back to his paper in the States, and he said, this war seems kind of phony to me. And that phrase kind of stuck, and that period became known um, as, the, as the phony war. But the phony war came to an abrupt end on the 7th of April 1940 when the Germans attacked Denmark and Norway. And this is a scene in uh, Narvik. The British tried to intervene, but as politicians of today would say, too little, too late. Uh, the Germans overran the country and there was a little kind of dress rehearsal almost for, for Dunkirk when the, the British troops were evacuated. So that wasn't good, but there were two very positive outcomes from the Battle of Norway. The first was that the Royal Navy was much, much stronger than the German Navy, which I'll come back to in more detail in a moment. And they undoubtedly won the naval battle of Norway. Uh, and you can see some of the devastation that they wrought here in Norvik. They sank 10 German destroyers in that exercise. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, presumably the Germans had a few dozen or, or 100 destroyers or whatever. They actually had 20 in total when they started the war. So they've now lost half their destroyer fleet. Uh, their two battleships were both damaged in the Battle of Norway, and they're in fjords under uh, repair. So the other positive outcome from the Battle of Norway was that the government of Chamberlain fell as a result of that uh, campaign, and of course, um, we all know who replaced him. Um, so I will be honest, I am a Winston Churchill fan, and I, I think you, you can't read the history of 1940 in detail and, and not be. Um, Chamberlain was, was hopelessly unmilitary. He was despondent and depressed, and that kind of mood uh, infected everyone. Uh, Churchill had an, an immediate impact on Whitehall and the government. The mood of, of depression just um, evaporated overnight, and his uh, defiant attitude and stirring speeches, as we'll see later on, uh, really inspired uh, the British people to, uh, to take the fight um, to the Germans. So Churchill became Prime Minister on the 10th of May. By a funny quirk of history, on that exact same day, uh, the 10th of May, uh, the Germans attacked in the West. Now, what was expected was that they would attack through Belgium and Holland in the north, and the, the British Expeditionary Force met them, and that battle all, all took place up here. 
The French had their much vaunted Maginot line all along here on the border between France and Germany, uh, a fortification that they built uh, between the wars at great expense and a, a very, very formidable obstacle. Uh, but the Germans, of course, just went round it. Uh, and they cut through the Ardennes mountain, cut through Luxembourg, and this thrust up to the coast, which was very much um, unexpected. And uh, you can then see what's, what's developing here. Uh, the British um, expeditionary force gets caught in a pincer movement, end up on the beaches um, in Dunkirk. And as we know, over, over 300,000 troops were evacuated, but of course left a lot of their um, equipment um, behind. So in the light of that development, Hitler started offering deals of some sort um, to Churchill and to the British government. Many of you may have seen the movie Darkest Hour over the last couple of years. Um, there are some totally fictitious episodes in that film, actually, but the broad thrust of it is true that there were appeasers within the British establishment, within the government, uh, but Churchill was, was resolute. He knew that a deal with Hitler meant slavery for the British people, so he um, stuck to his guns and rejected those overtures, and, of course, that very strongly supported by the British um, people. So, in response to that, uh, the Hitler then issued his uh, famous um, Führer Directive number 16 on preparations for a landing operation against England. Since England, in spite of her hopeless military situation, shows no sign of being ready to come to an understanding, I have decided to prepare and, if necessary, uh, sorry, prepare a landing operation against England and, if necessary, carry it out. So. Historians have pored over those two words in the subsequent decades, if necessary. Was Hitler ever absolutely serious about invading Britain? I'll come back to that later. The aim of this operation will be to eliminate the English homeland as a base for the prosecution of the war against Germany and, if necessary, to occupy it completely. I therefore order as follows. The landing will be in the form of a surprise crossing on a wide front from about Ramsgate to the area west of the Isle of Wight. And so he went on at uh, 16th of July, 1940. As we'll see in a moment, his would-be invasion fleet could move at a speed of about five to six knots. So I'm not quite sure where the surprise bit came in. Uh, this was to be called um, Operation um, Sea Lion. And of course, there were advantages to Hitler in having a stable British Empire else in the world. That really was his agenda, to keep that side of it stable so that he could uh, concentrate on the east. Now remember, of course, that the south coast British ports would have all, were all very heavily mined and on 24-hour watch. Uh, they would have been reduced to rubble and blocked with sunken ships at any attempt of the Germans to use uh, existing ports. So, of course, it had to be a, a beach-type landing, amphibious landing. So, planning uh, carried on. On the right-hand side here, we have Admiral Raider, who was the chief of the... German Navy, and he knew that the Royal Navy were greatly superior to his forces, and he was dead against Sea Lion all the way through, but of course he had to be careful because if he was too defeatist in Hitler's company, he would end up with a bullet in his head himself. Um, so the invasion was set for mid-September mid 1940. So as we saw in the last slide, the order was given in mid-July, so exactly three months. Now when you think that the D-Day landings in 1944 took the Allies two years to develop and prepare and rehearse for, to try to carry out a landing in three months was, that was pretty tough. Particularly when you bear, bear in mind, well, what experience did the Germans have of amphibious landings? Answer, none. What equipment did they have for amphibious landings? Answer, none. 
you could see this was going to be a pretty tall order. So one of the notable things about what happened through that summer between the German armed forces is that they were not aligned at all. In fact, they argued bitterly the three arms of the German armed forces. And this was an army plan drawn up. Uh, the Navy looked at this and basically said, you, you, you must be kidding. It is completely impossible. We have got nothing like the naval resources to undertake an invasion on that kind of scale. Um, so the plan evolved um, through the summer months and shrunk considerably. These operations out in the flank were all eliminated uh, and it was kind of going to be concentrated on an area along here, along uh, Brighton, Bexhill, um, Dover uh, kind of area. But there were lots of, uh, lots of arguments ensued. The German propaganda, it was very effective during the war, and the amazing thing about it is it still affects our understanding or, or beliefs as to what happened um, during the war uh, to, to, to this day. Uh, and it is an enduring myth that the Blitzkrieg that we saw when the Germans came through in 1940, a highly mechanized German army took on a poorly equipped French and British army. It's simply not true. The French and the British had lots of equipment and uh, lots, lots of vehicles. In Blitzkrieg, there were 10 panzer divisions, but they were supported by 118 infantry divisions, um, of which only six were motorized. So it is a totally, total myth that the German army were heavily motorized um, in uh, the Second World War. Now, you might be looking at that and thinking, well, surely that's the First World War. Well, it isn't. That's the Second World War. That's German cavalry um, in uh, the Second World War. Have a look at that picture of a German advance being inspected by Hitler. Um, and what's notably absent from that picture is, is an internal combustion engine. Yeah? Entirely horse-drawn and foot-slogging infantry. Um, and that's actually more typical, um, unlike the propaganda, that's more typical of the Germans in uh, the, certainly the early part of, of the war. They in fact used 2.8 million horses in the Second World War, uh, more than they did in the First World War. So, when you're coming to launch an invasion, just bear that point in mind, and we'll come back to that. So there were no landing craft, of course, in 1940. We're very familiar with the Allied landing craft that were used in 1944, but they hadn't been developed at this point. But what the Germans did have in abundance were barges on the Rhine and other northern European rivers. If you travel there to this day, you'll see vessels essentially similar to that. Um, but, of course, they're flat-bottomed river vessels. If any of you are sailors, any of you sail out in the Solent or the English Channel, um, you will know all about the surging, heaving waters of the English Channel and imagine the pitching and rolling of a flat-bottomed barge in those sorts of waters. Particularly bear in mind, back then, people travelled a lot less. Germany only is a quite a small northern coastline, or relatively small. The majority of Germans had never been to sea. So the prospect of them packed into these flat bottom barges uh, crossing the channel, the, the, the seasickness um, doesn't really bear thinking about. So what the Germans did was they, they cut the front off the barge, as you can see here, they've cut the front, they put in a, a temporary uh, removable door. They strengthened the floor, which you can kind of just see here because it was going to take a, a, a bigger load. Um, and then they built these rudimentary ramps. So this is obviously a training exercise on a, on a French beach. It was an incredible logistical exercise. They had 7,000 engineers working on this project. It was absolutely huge and obviously drew massive fleets, uh, impairing the German economy, of course, because all these hundreds of barges were all drawn up uh, to the northern uh, coast. 
Remember also this very important point. You can't just land an army on a beach and say, okay, off you go and conquer the country using whatever supplies, whatever ammunition you're carrying. You must think resupply immediately. And of course, again, if we think of 1944, the Mulberry Harbours that were towed across, resupplying the beachhead. So the Germans knew they had to do that as well. So if you're the German army in 1940, how do you haul supplies off the beach? The answer is you use horses. So this is what they planned to do. They put the horses into these kind of crates, and then they would be craned across onto uh, one of the, uh, the, the barges, and then they would then walk them down the ramp. So sorry, this is quite a grainy old picture. Some of these photographs are quite poor quality, but there's very, very few pictures that, it, that exist. Now, again, that's a training exercise. You can see everybody standing around quite casually. Um, but try, try to picture that scene under fire and those horses, grenades going off everywhere, being shot at. It would be an absolute pandemonium. But the German plan and the first wave, which would have been over about 48 hours, was to land 70,000 men and 4,500 horses by this method. Over the next um, week or so, or 10 days, they planned uh, to land 400,000 men and no less than 75,000 horses. Now, what do you know about horses? They eat hay, yeah? So now you've got to build into your plan bringing hay across the channel um, to feed the horses. So the Germans did have some vehicles, of course, and we know in the early part of the last century, France was a very advanced motoring nation. And of course, they'd stolen all the Peugeots and Renaults and all the rest of it from the French. So they did have some vehicles available to them. But back then, all those vehicles ran on petrol. We'd be more accustomed to them being diesel today. They all ran on petrol. And it was considered too big a fire risk, having petrol vehicles under fire on the beach and bringing jerry cans of, of additional fuel and so forth. So they thought, well, of uh, two options, the, the safer option was, uh, was actually the horses. And that's what they planned to do. Now, a lot of the barges were unpowered, and a bit of a typical German engineering ingenuity here. They mounted a couple of aero engines on this framework um, on the back of a barge, um, so it would kind of blow itself um, across the channel. Um, so the, the technically minded amongst you will notice that there's no radiators on those engines, um, and they adapted them. You can see this pipe running down. They adapted them to actually run seawater through them to, to cool them rather than having radiators. So I'm not sure how the blocks of aero engines would have agreed with uh, having salt water pumped through them. Um, but of course, it was a, a one-way one mission. So I suppose in the end, it, that didn't matter too much. Pretty noisy, that thing, as well. Uh, you got uh, 12 unsilent cylinders blasted away. Um, Hitler said it was going to be a surprise crossing. I think you, you'd... <laughs> I think you'd hear them starting it up in Calais. <laughs> so the Germans also pushed on and developed these Schwimmpanzer, uh, submersible tanks based on the Mark IV Panzer. They were sealed up from, from the inside, fitted with a periscope uh, and a snorkel that you can see coming out of here, um, 15 meters long uh, snorkel. So similar in a way to the horses, they'd be craned off the larger ship put onto the barge and then you have to say extremely courageous tank crews would then drive them down the ramps uh, and into the water uh, and in this particular exercise you can see the snorkel trailing along behind with the float here um, so 
that test has been successful because it is a test carried out in benign conditions. You know the depth of the water, you know the slope of the beach. Picture that on a hostile defended shore, murky water, you don't know how deep it is. And of course, if you're dropped off in water deeper than 15 meters, it's, it's curtains, there's no way out of there. Um, you don't know what obstacles there are underground, or un under the water rather. Um, so yeah, as I said, uh, you've got to give them that full marks uh, for courage, for, uh, for driving those things. So this is uh, Boulogne, and you can see there the build-up of the barges. So Bomber Command were also very heavily engaged in anti-invasion um, activities. In fact, um, Guy Gibson, who went on to come, was very famous leading the Dambusters raid. He flew bomber missions over the channel ports, not just attacking the barges, but also canals. That was a very important part of the canals, the main artery for bringing the barges up roads, rail, bridges, and uh, generally um, anti-invasion uh, uh, infrastructure. Seems pretty antiquated compared to later aircraft. This was a Handley Page Hamden. That's the, the aircraft that they flew in those uh, early bombing missions. One of the lesser known statistics about this period is that in the official Battle of Britain period from July to October, Fighter Command lost 544 aircrew. In that same period, running anti-invasion missions, Bomber Command lost 718 crew. So in actual fact, contrary to the, uh, the narrative that we're very, very familiar with today, Bomber Command's losses in this period were actually higher than Fighter Command's. So the Germans pushed on. And by the end of August, they had assembled 168 steamers, nearly 2,000 barges, mostly unpowered, uh, 220 tugs, 200 odd trawlers, uh, 1,600 smaller motorboats, and uh, 250 um, Schwimmpanzer. So again, I'm sorry, it's quite a poor quality photograph. Actually, it's not showing up too badly uh, on, on the right-hand side. It's the only one that exists, an aerial photograph of the only sort of reasonably substantial training mission that the Germans um, carried out. Um, and it doesn't seem to be going too well. This, this captain here of a trawler, he seems to have gone off a bit on his own. Uh, presumably he's a bit worried about getting entangled. The others, by contrast, they seem too close. It seems like there's a strong risk of entanglement. And uh, the exercise didn't go well. It ended in a bit of a disarray. Um, and it certainly didn't um, bode well for the, uh, the invasion. As I mentioned, they would move along at about four or five knots. Um, some people would be at sea for up to eight hours. And again, just think through the sickness, the seasickness on that. And the whole trail would have been about 10 kilometers long. So this is pretty, uh, pretty unwieldy, to say the least. So against that um, improvised German um, invasion fleet was the might of the British destroyers. Uh, so here's an example, HMS Hero. As you can see, very heavily armed um, craft. They could do 36 knots. Very experienced, highly capable um, crew, well-armed, as I said, um, maneuverable. Uh, they would have wrought devastation. Can you imagine them charging in and out of those uh, barges being towed across at four to five knots? Now, destroyers are called destroyers for a reason. You know, they're quite good at destroying things. Um, and that is undoubtedly what uh, they would have wrought carnage. And in actual fact, if you look at this photograph of destroyers at speed, um, they threw up a highly destructive bow wave. Now, you think the, the barges are going to be sitting quite low in the water, yeah? They could actually overwhelm the barges with water and sink them um, without even opening fire. 
But of course, they most certainly could open fire. Uh, that's the anti-aircraft guns on the front of a, uh, of a destroyer. Now again, the legend of the Stuka doesn't really sort of fit on the reality of it. It had some successes against static land-based and largely undefended targets earlier in the war. Um, but it's an altogether different proposition to try to attack a well-armed, aggressively operated destroyer sending up a hail of anti-aircraft fire at you. It's very difficult for a bomber to destroy a, a destroyer to actually uh, score a hit. I'll come back to that later. It's an important point, that. So this was the team sheet um, as at the summer of 1940. Um, and this is just the Royal Navy home fleet. Now remember, this was the age of empire. Britannia really, really did rule the waves. It was the largest navy by far in the world. Um, and we're only going to look at the home fleet. We're not including the Mediterranean, the Far East, other deployments um, all, all, all around the world. So three battleships, two battle cruisers, 11 cruisers, 80 destroyers, 100 plus minesweepers, and 10 cruisers and 52 um, destroyers in the um, Atlantic. So that's a, a size that today's Royal Navy can, can only dream of that. It's only a fraction of the size. Now, as far as the Atlantic is concerned, remember what we were saying earlier, the invasion is going to take several days and there's going to be vital resupply missions. So you actually have time to bring the Atlantic destroyers in. So therefore, you really need to count them. Um, and you probably have 130 destroyers. So against that, we've got the Kriegsmarine, two battleships, as I mentioned, they're holed up in fjords in uh, Norway, and they're both out of action. Two cruisers, 10 destroyers left out of their 20, and about 200 small powered boats, including some motor torpedo boats, but again, pretty small numbers. So there's different ways of measuring this, but on any basis, it was at least odds against the German Navy of uh, 10 to 1. That's the best possible odds that they would have met. So let's, let's pause here and let's think through one of the what-if scenarios. So what if the aerial battle of Britain had been lost? Now, I don't think the fighter command would have been put out of action completely, but let's say they were pushed back to the west country or north of London, and they were substantially inoperative in the southeast. So the Battle of Britain now changes. The Battle of Britain is no longer Air Force versus Air Force. It's now Navy versus Air Force. Can the Luftwaffe prevent the Royal Navy from preventing the invasion? And the answer is almost certainly not. For the reason that I mentioned earlier, 130 destroyers, you, you can take, obviously there would have been some losses and some sinkings, but there's such an overwhelming force in the channel that the best the Luftwaffe could do was, was to, to, to sink some, but certainly not to... Uh, seriously uh, damaged the uh, Br British fleet. Now Churchill knew all of this stuff. Churchill, of course, had bitter experience of unsuccessful amphibious landings in the First World War, and he was First Lord of the Admiralty, so he knew all about uh, naval um, resources. But of course, what he did do, he brilliantly exploited the threat of invasion through his speeches and his leadership and he galvanized the whole public uh, and the military into a, a mood of defiance and engendered a terrific uh, unity of purpose, which, of which more later on. Now, if some German troops had got ashore, um, who was going to take them on? <laughs> now, we, 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 we love Dad's army. 
and I know Steve has his little uh, pretend Dad's Army thing um, at the beginning, but the trouble about Dad's Army is it does perpetuate um, a, a distorted view um, that the Home Guard was actually much stronger than uh, the Dad's Army would make you uh, believe. So Churchill had suggested raising a Home Guard of some sort in uh, 1939. That wasn't acted upon. He became Prime Minister on the 10th of May, um, and on the 14th of May, Anthony Eden, who was his War Secretary, made um, an announcement. They were initially called the Local Defence Volunteers, LDV, but Churchill hated that name, and he later changed the name to the Home Guard. Um, so men not capable of full military service, aged between 17 and 65, and to report to um, local uh, police stations. So there were stories of men in pubs leaving pints unfinished uh, and going straight down uh, to, their, to their local um, police station and signing up. Now, within 24 hours, there were a quarter of a million recruits. By the end of May, 400,000 recruits. And by the end of July, nearly one and a half million recruits um, into the, the LDV as it was. Now, the start was pretty chaotic. There wasn't enough equipment. There weren't enough uniforms. There were all sorts of stories of people turning up for parades with pitchforks. People went into museums, took out rifles from museums, and turned up. There was even a story of somebody took a musket um, out of a museum and uh, turned up for the LDV parade um, carrying um, his uh, musket. The point about it is things improved quickly. Um, rifles and other material was pouring in from America and from the other empire countries. And uh, the, the musket era was actually relatively brief. Um, but because of Dad's army, it kind of lingers on in the public consciousness, even though, as I said, it was uh, quite, a, quite, quite a brief period. Um, so here we have a, a, a home guard training exercise. You can see now they all do have uniforms and steel hats, and they all have uh, Rifles uh, don't seem to have had grenades yet, because as you can see, I think you can probably make that out, um, they've created these Molotov cocktails out of uh, lemonade bottles, presumably full of water. I mean, this is just a, 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 a training exercise. Presumably they're not actual Molotov cocktails. Um, but I like this juxtaposition here. This guy's obviously borrowed his wife's shopping basket <laughs> and has filled it up with Molotov cocktails and gone off training. So there's still a bit of improvisation going on, but as I said, um, uh, things improved very, very quickly. So have a look at this unit, um, and this is relatively early on, because if you look at their armbands, you'll see it's LDV, so this is before it even changed its name to uh, the, the, the Home Guard. So as I said, the sort of bumbling nature of uh, the Home Guard, or of Dad's Army rather, uh, is not really reflective of the, uh, the reality. Um, so I have to declare an interest here, because Harry Sherrard was in the Home Guard. Not me, obviously, uh, but my late uncle was in the Home Guard in Londonderry, which of course is in the front line of the, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic. He reached the age of 17 towards the end of the war and joined up. I've always envisaged him as a kind of sort of Private Pike sort of character and, uh, in the Home Guard. So this is the sort of thing that they would do, these slots in the road. Um, they'd put in RSJs or railway tracks and they would uh, create a roadblock. But to use a modern phrase, um, it was all about managing expectations. Nobody was kidding themselves that the village home guard was going to take on half a dozen pantsers and, and, and take them out. Um, this is what a typical home guardsman said. Um, Our unit could block the road in about half a minute with angled pieces of railway line. We had little prospect of holding the attackers off for long, but if they could be delayed at every block, the cumulative effect of the delays would be to allow mobile regular army units to get to the scene. In effect, we were trained and equipped to fight 
and lose a nasty little battle that might last half an hour. So what, uh, what amazing courage. And the euphemistic word uh, lose, you know, lose, i.e. get killed. So Churchill's combat of spirit um, was very infectious and had a huge um, impact on the morale and the motivation of the, peop of the, of the people and the public. Poll suggested 78% of people were right behind what he was doing. And he, uh, at this time, gave his, his very famous speech, we'll not flag or fail, we'll go on to the end, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and the hills, uh, we shall never surrender. A lot of which, of course, can be taken literally. Uh, I think these people, these days people talk about fighting on the beaches as a figure of speech, but of course, at that time, it was actually literal. Also important for British morale was the fact that the king and queen didn't leave. There was a lot of talk of them going off to Canada for safety, uh, but they stayed in Windsor and London um, throughout this period, as did their two daughters, Elizabeth and uh, Margaret. And in the middle of September, six bombs fell in Buckingham Palace, about 30 metres from where the king and queen um, were sitting, so they had a very um, narrow escape. That photograph was taken the year after, actually 1941. That's a meeting that they had with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, if anybody recognises her. So the regular army on the south coast came under General Alan Brooke, and there definitely was nothing Dad's army about him. Um, like me, he was in Ulsterman, actually. He was a tough, uh, resourceful, highly respected professional soldier with a very strong reputation for um, getting things done. And he set about uh, re-equipping and reorganizing British and Empire troops uh, to defend if an invasion was going to be mounted. By August, he had 75,000 officers and 1.7 million troops. And again, it's one of those myths that Britain was kind of on its knees after Dunkirk. You know, it's not true. It was just the British Expeditionary Force. There were lots of troops and, and equipment left um, in, in the UK, uh, and they had that basis there to build up that defensive force very quickly um, through the summer months. So a massive process of fortification was undertaken. Uh, this is the beach at Eastbourne. Uh, beaches were mined, barbed wire. Um, lots and lots of gun emplacements were put up. Some of these were quite old guns, they were former naval guns that were redeployed, but um, certainly able to take out a barge. No less than um, 18,000 um, pillboxes were constructed around the east and southern coast of, uh, of the UK with overlapping fields of fire where, where possible. This is like a modern day picture of a, of a, a remaining uh, pillbox. Obviously somebody has, uh, somebody has bricked up um, the front of it there. But all of this was done with, uh, with great speed and diligence by uh, both the military and uh, civilian contractors. So this is an aspect of anti-invasion preparations that a lot of people are uh, familiar with, and oddly enough it's uh, based on quite locally here. Um, so taking down the road signs in case uh, the Germans invaded and they would then get, get lost, they wouldn't know where they were. Now, how... Um, how, how effective that would have been uh, is possibly open to question. Uh, but, you know, one of the points, look, at, look who's doing that, it's civilians. Uh, you know, and it feeds into this huge and unprecedented collective effort by the whole population uh, to resist uh, invasion. Now, who's ever heard of a sticky bomb? 
Yep. So the sticky bomb was invented by a unit called uh, the Military Intelligence Unit. Uh, their nickname became the, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Um, and there's, there's a book, book written about them, I call that the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, which is absolutely excellent, I highly um, recommend that. So they developed the sticky bomb, it was a, a glass sphere, inside it was nitroglycerine, round the outside, as the name suggests, was, it was a special glue that they developed, and then it had this kind of metal casing around it. So to, to use it, obviously you normally close the metal casing so that the glue wouldn't get stuck on things, um, and then when uh, you went to use it, would push a button, the, uh, th this cover would drop down, and then the sticky bomb itself would be uh, exposed. In theory, you could throw it at passing German army armor, but in practice, um, you probably had to go out and hit it yourself. Um, so it was not exactly a, a suicide weapon, but uh, certainly not, not a very safe weapon um, to um, operate. Now, the regular army weren't that keen on it. Uh, they didn't like a lot of the stuff that the military intelligence unit brought out in the early days. They thought it was a little bit sort of guerrilla warfare, but that ministry reported directly to Churchill. They went up to um, Checkers and had a, a demonstration of it, and uh, Churchill absolutely loved it. He, he loved things that went bang, and <laughs> he was completely won over by the demonstration. He came back down to London. He got a piece of 10 Downing Street notepaper, and in his own hand he wrote, Sticky Bomb, Make One Million. And so by, uh, by August, unbelievably, they were making 20,000 um, sticky bombs a week. Uh, could pierce armour about an inch thick, um, apparently. But you know, there's a deeper story behind that photograph, because the Germans invented the phrase total war, but that came much later. It's arguable that Britain actually got there first. At this stage of the war, the German economy was not on a full um, war footing. And actually it was Britain that achieved um, the first mass mobilisation of civilians um, into the war effort long before Germany actually did that. And by, by late summer, um, we were actually making more munitions and more aircraft uh, than, than the Germans were. So these were incredible months. In that context, uh, Churchill gave one of his uh, most famous speeches, um, Hitler knows he'll have to break us on this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so conduct ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. So very much addressed at the population as a whole and not only the military. This is Churchill visiting uh, Coventry Cathedral, of course it was heavily bombed um, during, during the Blitz. Now, although there was petrol rationing throughout the war, uh, Britain actually had large supplies of oil and petrol. The reason for that was that oil came via Britain to mainland Europe from America. When the war stopped, started, onward shipments stopped. Uh, we actually had big supplies of oil, and we could actually afford to be um, profligate with oil. The Petroleum Warfare Department was established, and they experimented with an oil and petrol mix and setting that the sea on fire. And this conflagration was so hot, it actually boiled the sea. So I mean, can you imagine yourself in one of those barges approaching that? Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty scary. Um, there also were land-based fire traps, large and small. That's a pretty large one there, obviously. Uh, but again, the Home Guard were issued with barrels of petrol 
um, for, for fire traps, and they developed um, various different techniques to uh, uh, set off fire traps if any, any, any German troops um, did uh, get ashore. Also developed this device, which with a bit of um, typical um, British military black humour, um, was nicknamed the Ronson. <laughs> its job, obviously, to uh, set light to Germans rather than cigarettes. Now, the fire warfare was brilliantly exploited by British propaganda. Um, they knew from captured Luftwaffe pilots who'd been shot down during the Battle of Britain that the Germans knew this was going on. It's hugely visible, obviously. Uh, they knew that the British were experimenting with um, setting the sea on fire uh, and other um, petroleum warfare from uh, the uh, interrogation. So what the British uh, propaganda people did was they created this little mock English-German translation leaflet and printed them off in, in large numbers. And helpful phrases that they gave the Germans were, I feel seasick. Where is the bucket? The sea smells of petrol here. And see how well the captain burns. Now, believe it or not, they actually printed a million of those. And they flew up and down the coastline of uh, France and Belgium, dropping these leaflets on the, uh, the would-be uh, invasion, German um, invasion troops. So let's come on now to the most um, controversial and I think least known aspect of British anti-invasion um, preparations. Um, and that is that Churchill and the War Cabinet had a very clear policy of first use chemical weapons. Um, Britain actually had large reserves of chemical weapons, and particularly mustard gas, over, over 800 tonnes. Now, the Geneva Protocol had been signed in 1925, uh, banning, obviously, chemical weapons in warfare following the First World War. But Churchill took the view that Nazism was a far, far darker force than anything that was envisaged by the authors of the Protocol in, in 1925, and also that it was written in the context of a pan-European war, a bit like the First World War had been. He took the view that an island nation under attack from a hostile nation was entitled um, to defend itself. So he said, we'll not hesitate to contaminate our beaches with gas if this would be to our advantage. We have the right to do what we like with our own territory. And a war office paper said, we can deliver gas attack from the air on a considerable scale. Uh, low spray would be the most effective method for dealing with uh, troops on beaches. So Bomber Command had a chemical warfare unit, uh, including a couple of Wellingtons, which presumably were, were, were built here. They had 1,000-pound um, containers on them, and the pilots were trained in uh, spraying um, gas. Now, I've not been able to find a photograph of any of the uh, aircraft involved in chemical warfare, but I have found a photograph of this. So there would also have been land-based chemical warfare. This is called a bulk contamination vehicle. And it would have a 130-gallon tank here of uh, mustard gas. Um, and that would have been sprayed in, in, a, in a rear guard action. The Germans were advancing up from the beaches. Uh, the ground would have been um, contaminated uh, with, with mustard gas. And the third element was uh, shells. The army had actually thousands of shells um, filled with gas. And uh, General Brooke, who we saw earlier, made it very clear that he would have given the order for uh, chemical weapons to be used in the event of an invasion being attempted. 
So I, so, I sometimes wonder what, uh, what different world we might live in if uh, the British had actually first use of uh, chemical weapons against the, the Germans in the war. So a pretty um, drastic measure, obviously, but you know, let's remind ourselves of what uh, Britain conquered by Germany would have looked like. Up to 11 million adult males deported to become slaves. So that's genocide. That's the male reproductive British population gone. Over 2,000 leading individuals executed, all Jews murdered, British population treated um, very harshly, as, as, we, as we discussed earlier. Uh, British assets and property plundered, all the oil I talked about, our coal, our food, everything would have been plundered and taken to, to, to Germany. There would have been no territory from which to launch bombing raids on Germany. So the bombing campaign remains a, a, a slightly controversial subject, um, but it undoubtedly contributed significantly um, to the war, winning the war. A very important fact in the early days of the war it was the only way in which we could actually hit back at Germany. As we know, Germany then attacked Russia in the spring of 1941 with Britain subdued. They could have used all their forces in the Eastern Campaign. Would that have meant that they'd have actually conquered Russia? Quite, quite possibly. And then, of course, fast forwarding to 1944, there would have been no territory um, from which to launch D-Day, um, the reoccupation of Europe. So certainly Britain conquered by Germany uh, would have changed the history of the world, undoubtedly. But fortunately, none of that happened, um, because in September 1940, uh, Hitler cancelled Operation Sea Lion. Why did he do that? Well, he still believed Britain would seek terms. Uh, and if you look at the map of Europe at that time, you can kind of see a little bit where he's coming from. Um, the the grey representing the Axis powers, white, uh, the neutral countries, obviously Soviet Union here, and then us uh, stuck out here um, on, on our own with, um, oddly enough, tiny little Iceland um, as our only nearby ally. So on the face of it, yeah, the situation for Britain did look um, pretty, pretty vulnerable, particularly bearing in mind uh, Hitler was still bombing British cities. And at that stage, um, the U-boat campaign was going well for the Germans. So Hitler hoped that he could bomb and starve us uh, into uh, submission. Greatly increased British defences. Again, I mentioned the awareness of the petroleum warfare, but of course they were aware of everything else as well, the gun emplacements, the pillboxes, and the British weren't making any secret of this. They were putting stuff over the radio about arms coming in from America, etc. The Germans were listening into that. So they were very well aware that um, the rearmament of Britain through the summer of 1940 had taken place. As we mentioned earlier, RAF bombers were still attacking the, the invasion uh, fleet. That was still uh, fairly intense, still going on. His, his own personal focus shifted to attacking uh, the Soviet Union in spring um, 1941. Um, as we know very well, our RAF fighter command wasn't uh, defeated in uh, the Battle of Britain. And still, the most important um, single factor was the continued massive um, superiority of the Royal Navy. So Hitler wasn't an admiral, he didn't have a lot of naval knowledge, but you know, he knew the difference between a barge and a battleship. Um, and he knew that he would suffer a humiliating defeat when the uh, British destroyers attacked his uh, improvised barge fleet. But why, why is it that we have, if you like, this unbalanced view of this period of history? Because so many documentaries you see, so many books you read, it's, it's this one here, it's fighter command not defeated. That's the only factor. 
Some, sometimes you read things that almost says that, well, you know, but for fighter command, uh, the invasion would almost have been a formality. Um, you know, not true, as we've seen this evening. There was a whole series of complex, overlapping reasons that the uh, invasion uh, didn't take place. Um, but why is it we have that um, unbalanced view? Well, I think it's that man again, isn't it? Um, he brilliantly judged the mood of the British people, and he could see that they needed a, a visible, tangible victory. And of course, nothing was more visible than the Battle of Britain fought over the skies of uh, southern England. The naval deterrence victory, it was kind of out in the channel, it was remote, it was unseen, it was um, intangible, and it uh, lacked the, the dramatic spectacle of uh, the aerial battle. So he then made his famous speech, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Uh, and in that speech, he mythologized almost overnight uh, the few of, of fighter command. And of course, that's been uh, perpetuated um, to this day. But as we've seen, it wasn't just fighter command, great though their deeds were. Uh, it was also bomber command, the navy, the army, the home guard, uh, and that huge um, collective um, civilian effort. So in every way, it was a victory by the many, not by the few. Thank you. More questions than answers from that. Um, any questions for Harry to kick off? Hi, Harry. You um, only mentioned the RAF at the end and the Battle of Britain, which obviously is very much um, almost, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's obviously a little bit of a fantasy, although it's obviously a very serious part of the war. Um, yeah, I mentioned you, it at the beginning as well. I said yeah, the story's very well yeah, known. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you feel that the Germans sort of um, had the aerial invasion almost as a almost as a tester as to whether they could have uh, won the Battle of Britain? Or do you think it was a little bit more a case of uh, knocking out that first and then seeing what else they could do? No, I think it's much more complex than that. There's sort of the narrative that we're very used to that it was, you know, as I said when I was speaking, the Battle of Britain, RAF command, fighter command defeated invasion. It's just not as simple as that. As we look, there's a whole complex series of overlapping reasons, and that, that narrative I don't think is, uh, is, is, is accurate, actually. You know, and I'm not in any way. I mean, I hold the uh, pilots of Fighter Command absolute heroes. I mean, what they did was absolutely fantastic. It's a wonderful story, but as I said at the start, it's not the whole story. There were stories later on about this guerrilla force yes. that were poachers, yeah. gamekeepers, that yeah. had these secret caches in the country, yeah. especially around, say, Hurtmore Common, yeah. round the Surrey Hills and Sussex, where there were places, and their families didn't even know about it. Yeah, that's true. And it true. came out later. Yeah. Well, how much history have you got on that? Please? Yeah, I mean, I, I, within the confines of my talk this evening, I couldn't talk about all aspects, and I, I chose to leave that out, but you're, you're right, that, that wasn't important. There, there were hides made whereby guerrilla forces were uh, going, going to st stay behind forces, effect, essentially suicide missions, that they um, could hide with a certain amount of ammunition, um, as the German forces would move past, they would come out of their hides and they would attack the, the Germans from, from the rear. But there was very little chance of those guys surviving. They're pro probably going to be, be killed in the, in, in the process. Um, and do, do you know who organised all of that? Who was in charge of that? It was actually um, Peter Fleming, who's actually Ian Fleming's brother, who wrote the James Bond books. And he's written a book about that, actually, about or, or organising the stay-behind forces. 
Yeah, with, with, within, within UK, yeah. But it, as you say, their families didn't even know about it. In the event of the invasion, they'd have disappeared down their holes and then only, only come out once the country was overrun and then mounted a guerrilla campaign. You go along the Surrey lanes, you can see these pillboxes still there. Yeah, you can still see some remnants of that to this and day, for sure. Yeah. The, uh, I, I should point out, ladies and gentlemen, the young lady here that's just asked the question uh, is Helen Mills. And Helen, she's going to correct me because she always does, but uh, she was a plotter uh, during the Fighter Command, Battle of Britain, and I have huge admiration for her. Uh, she comes along to a lot of these talks. Fantastic. What a memory. Round of applause, Helen. Thank you for being here. Another, another question, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Could I suggest that you go and deliver this talk in Brussels? You'll only upset one country. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. <laughs> we'll remember that. <laughs> Hello. I'd like to take you back to that, um, that sort of warning that was put up at the very start of your talk. Yes, yes. Um, about the awful things that would happen to the British people. Yes. How much of that was actually written in the light of the resistance the German forces met in the other invading countries? That, that, that they met in what? How much of that was written, yeah. what, who's going, what was going to be done against the British people, was yeah. written in the light of the resistance the armed forces had met, that Germany had met when they invaded the other nations in Europe? Yeah, well, I, I guess it was an unfolding, developing scene. They, 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 they weren't sure, because don't forget, they, they conquered France far, far quicker than they expected to. Um, they didn't expect to reach the Channel Coast in uh, May 1940. So, you know, they, 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 they hadn't done a lot of preparatory work for, for, for that. But they, they certainly were taking, for whatever reason, exceedingly harsh line um, against Britain. As I said in my talk, those very, very onerous rules weren't going to be applied to um, other, other European countries. So. Hitler, was, Hitler vacillated at some stages. He said he admired the British Empire and wanted it to, to be maintained. At other stages, the Britons were, were, were number one enemy. But there's no doubt about the um, authority of those, because they were signed by von Brautisch, who was the, the head of German high command. So, I mean, that was official German policy. Okay, I think there's another question at the front. Are you allowed to ask a question? I am, yes. Okay. Don't make it too difficult. Oh, I know. Yeah, so um, one of the things you hit on to is how perhaps the efforts of the Navy and the Army have been downplayed in how we remember the battle. Yeah. Um, I think this is true of pop culture and of many documentaries and even the school syllabus, because yeah. I work in a school. Yeah. I was thinking, why do you think that is? Do you think that's because of the, uh, the myth established by Churchill? And what do you think we could do to perhaps redress the balance and perhaps inform more people about these more neglected aspects of the campaign? Yeah, I... I I saw a documentary come up on a history channel or a Discovery History Channel that two or three weeks ago or a bit longer and I thought well I'll, I'll what about the Battle of Britain I thought well I'll watch that because it would be useful make it some little extra information about this evening the very first line of it had me shouting at the TV okay okay in May 1940 Britain was defenseless that was the opening. You know, defenseless, yeah. Apart from 130 destroyers, so let, yeah. Let, 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 let's go through every, everything else, yeah. You know, I think it's intellectual laziness, if I'm, if I'm honest. I think that documentary makers say, let, let's let's watch the last three or four documentaries on this subject. And again, the thing about Blitzkrieg, you watch a documentary about that, 
All you will ever see is reproduction from German newsreel of panzers knocking down trees and all the rest of it. Who, who's ever seen German cavalry in the First World War or the Second World War before? You know, you never see that. So I think that it's, it's a sort of almost a laziness thing. We'll just like, repeat the documentary that the previous guy made, and so uh, that, that, that's why you know the full story tends not to come out. But uh, I, as I've said, obviously all the way through this evening, there was a much broader story behind uh, the events of summer 1940. Any more questions? Yes, sir. Have you got any information about how effective bomber command may have been against the invasion forces <coughs> of the Baltics? Well, well as, as you know, there was always a disparity between you know, claims and, and, and the reality. Um, the, the, there certainly were some uh, spectacular successes, and there was a nuisance, of course. As I said, the losses were quite high, so the Germans had a lot of AK-AK guns, of course, were, were obviously shooting at them. Um, there was a, the, the Hamden that I put up, there was a, a, a bomber command pilot, he won the VC actually, an incredibly courageous mission to attack one of the canals that were bringing the barges up um, from, from, from Germany and that was a successful mission, very badly shot up and everything but brought, brought, brought the plane back. So, you know, there, there, there certainly were, you know, considerable successes. Just the observation that the gentleman here said about the myth, I think this is reflected with the Spitfire because the Hurricane was in at the beginning and yeah. carried out a lot more effective work than eventually the Spitfire. Yeah. But there seemed every documentary, as you say, intellectual laziness. Yeah. They, oh, the Spitfire did this, that, and something else. Yeah. But I think the yeah. Hurricane was there first, doing a lot more sterling service. Steve mentioned earlier I was over in California doing my Goodwood talk, and um, some of you were at that probably, yeah, and I, I showed Douglas Bader in it, and um, you know, various Second World War planes and so forth, how Goodwood was an airfield. I was amazed how well informed the American audience were, actually. Uh, one of them asked me about the, the mission to drop off the extra leg for Douglas Bader after he was shot down. And I didn't even know they would have heard of Douglas Bader. And one of the questions they asked me was, which do you think was the most important in the Battle of Britain, the Hurricane or the Spitfire? I really didn't expect an American audience to ask me that question. So as I said, they were, they were incredibly well informed. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the Hurricane certainly was the workhorse. Be the uh, Spitfire got the glamour. It was the more glamorous aircraft. Um, another question, maybe, or are we getting yes? Um, I'm interested to know what happened with all the chemicals that we were being prepared to use, like the mustard gas. What happened to that because they weren't used? Yeah. Well, they weren't, they weren't got rid of in a hurry. I mean, you know, we, we, we had a lot of stuff all the way through the 50s and the 60s. I mean, I guess it would have degraded over time. But, I mean, we had ample stores of chemical weapons many, many years after the, uh, after the Second World War. I was talking to a guy the other evening who was in the Navy in the 60s, and he said, you know, we had lots of chemical weapons then. I think sometimes the actual um, reality for the people, talking about the eight sort of threats at the beginning. Um, sorry. My mother was uh, building Spitfires after the Supermarines factory had been destroyed. And so she was like one of the new ones into the new dispersal factories. And she said that everybody in the factory was more than aware of the fact that they might have been taken for um, slave labour, etc. So right. in the factory itself, she was known as AV91. There was nothing in the factory at all that would have given her name. Um, and they deliberately, the girls in the factory, deliberately never went out with each other in terms of around each other's houses. They gave, everyone had a nickname. Nobody knew exactly their own names, purely because they're so scared that... Uh, that they may have been, after invasion, forced to reveal the other girls they worked with. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. I wasn't, I wasn't aware that they were all so, uh, so conscious of that. But, um, you know, back to Dad's army, a quick comment on that. I was speaking to a guy the other evening, and his grandfather had been in the Home Guard. 
His, his grandfather then passed away, but his, his grandmother was still alive uh, while he was growing up. And uh, she, she wouldn't let them put Dad's army on in the house. She said, it's not a joke. You know, your grandfather put his, put his life on the line. It was a serious business. And uh, she didn't accept that it was right that, that you know, Dad's army would, would, would denigrate the Home Guard. It was a, a very, very serious business for those who were involved. Right. Yeah. Uh, just some, someone here is just repeating the, the, the same comment that uh, other people who were in the Home Guard also were, were insulted. Before uh, I ask a question, that, that picture you've got there contains another flaw, namely Winston Churchill was never a pilot in the Royal Air Force. <laughs> There's lo lo lots of people in the Air Force who aren't pilots, of course. Yeah, but he carries the wings. However, uh, the I, I attended a, another talk, and that, that put up a different scenario, namely that Hitler never wanted to invade us, he wanted to scare us. And because we uh, won the Battle of Britain, the scare could not be carried out, and therefore um, we, we would not, um, he could not, uh, he would have to put forces here uh, on the coast so we couldn't put as many to hit Russia. Do you buy yeah. that? Well, in, 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 in part, I mean, I can only refer again to what, to what, what I said before. There are a whole series of complex reasons, overlapping reasons, to why he, uh, he, he called off the, the invasion. And obviously, the penultimate one there, fighter command not being defeated, was a, was, was a major factor. But I still believe that it was the, the massive superiority of the Navy, uh, the, the lesser-known aspect of all of this, that was, uh, was actually the, the most important single factor. And when you look at those barges and try to think all of that through in detail, and the horses and all the rest of it, and put 130 British destroyers into the mix. You know, there could only have been one outcome. Okay, I think that's probably enough, but I've got one person who'd like to say a few more words. Once you start Helen off, you're never gonna stop her, okay? But um, she wants to talk about the D-Day celebrations. Hi there. Um, there will be a Duxbridge at the 11 Group Fighter Command in uh, at Uxbridge, the D-Day celebrations. They're doing a big thing there for the, at the bunker, and I've been asked to speak. I've been interviewed by a history professor and filmed, and whether that, when that's coming out, I don't know, but this will be on the 6th of June this year, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. So watch this space, if you like, or watch the airspace. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay. Helen, you should never ask a lady your age, but how old are you now? I'm in my 95th year. Wow. <laughs> Once again, Harry, thank you very much indeed. Um, so